Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I wanted to tell you a little bit about how we make our jewellery at Alighieri. We make everything in wax. I sculpt them like mini sculptures and carry them by hand like fragile little creatures to our casters in London's Hatton Garden. Our casters are an amazing family-run business and they take this little wax and transform it through the ancient art of lost wax casting, whereby the wax is transformed into recycled bronze and silver before being gold-plated and finding its way to you. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the incredible data journalist and artist Mona Chalabi. Currently the data editor of The Guardian US, a position she has held for the past five years, the London-born but now New York-based Chalabi is known for her outstanding data-informed visualizations and drawings that range from addressing stats around gender imbalances in museums, to hate crimes and immigration issues, to what time of day Americans might eat pizza. Bold, full of colour and often hand-drawn directly onto graph or square paper, it is with humour and wit that Chalabi pushes boundaries to challenge societal assumptions and habits that have come to affect the way we live and think. Having exhibited at the Tate Design Museum, at the V&A Glasgow and more, and created illustrations for The New Yorker, New York Review of Books, Netflix, as well as to her 400,000 plus strong Instagram following, where you can find much of her recent work, Chalabi has also written and presented for the BBC, National Geographic, Channel 4 and Vice, and was nominated for an Emmy for her video series Vagina Dispatches for The Guardian. Commended by the Royal Statistical Society, oh nominated God, for a Beasley Design... <laughs> Jesus, wrap it up. Come on. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, you've done so much. Nominated for a Beasley Design of the Year Award and a former columnist for 538, 
called Dear Mona. Chalabi is translating spreadsheets into written pieces, illustration, audio and film for the modern day consumer, allowing us all to enjoy and interact with her reliable data sources as she breaks down the wall between complex information, art and illustration. And on a personal level, it has been this year more than ever with the current coronavirus pandemic, Black Lives Matter movement and the American election that Mona's data-informed works have resonated with people around the world. By using the power of art and illustration, she has allowed us to consume complex information in ways that I never thought possible. Mona Chalabi, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, okay. I found that a little exhausting, Katie. I don't know how you found it. <laughs> but thank you. You've obviously done your research. No corrections needed. Thank you. That's so good. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Mona. It's such an honour to speak to you. I have been such an avid follower of your work for so long now, like everyone else I know. Um, I think what I love about your work is how accessible and visual you make data and how you simplify in a way that is both humorous, engaging, but most of all, memorable. I think my brain is definitely wired to look at images as a way of consuming information. <laughs> but I'd just love to start off by asking you, why are you drawn to using images and illustration for subject matters that relate to data and the news? Mm, good opening question. <laughs> so... I think I I started illustrating statistics when I was working at 5.38. And in that job, basically, my peers were kind of building quite complex interactives or quite standard graphs. First of all, there was a part of me that was just like, I can't compete with that. Like, I would have to learn a shitload of code and understand how to build those interactives. But it was also based on a belief that they were kind of overstating precision. How can you convey imprecision in charts charts that in themselves feel quite inherently accurate right they're just like these neat bars and and neat slices and lines that don't communicate in precision so to hand draw stuff felt quite natural I was also bored and frustrated in that job so I just kind of started doodling at my desk which is something <laughs> that I've never done like I was never the kid in class that would doodle but it felt like I really needed some kind of creative outlet I honestly did it because I was feeling really shit and to post a, a few of these illustrations online I just saw them resonating with people and people saying this makes sense to me and that felt so good so I just kept on doing it yeah you have this incredible ability to like I said simplify things but in such an accessible way whether it is all these important information but I mean why do you think it is important to make statistics more accessible to a wider audience Oh my God, so many reasons. I feel like data is shaping all of our lives in these complicated ways. And if you say, listen, I don't get it. I'm shit at maths. I'm never going to understand it. You are relinquishing so much of your power to self-determine what's right for you, be that choosing the right medication, be that deciding whether or not to go to college or which college to go to. Statistics can be really helpful in guiding your own personal choices. I also feel like if we just relinquish that control and say, you know, it is what it is, I don't get it, then it kind of just ends up in the hands of white men who design the data sets, who convey the data sets, who analyse the data sets. And that feels like a real missed opportunity. So, you know, a big part of my work isn't just presenting statistics, but it's questioning them. So I'm not Mm. saying that I have this absolute blind faith in the numbers, far from it. I think they actually do a really bad job sometimes of representing all groups in society fairly. Yeah. But I don't think that should be a reason for dismissing them altogether, because when we do, actually what you find is that marginalised groups are left with so little 
to work with in terms of their advocacy efforts. If you want to organise as a group, you have to be able to a certain extent speak with one coherent voice and statistics kind of allow you to do that. Like when I look at a data set, I see 10,000 voices in there that have been aggregated to kind of speak as one a little bit. Yeah, no, it's it's so interesting. You know, even recently, obviously with the coronavirus, the British government are giving us all these stats (laughs) when the lockdown came in the other night. Well, first of all, they... um... On the slideshow, they didn't actually fit in on the actual screen, so we were only seeing half of them. Oh my like, god! How do you expect the British public to consume these? There's something so distant about it yeah. and so clinical to the point of I'm not even going to look at this because it's not even engaging. Yeah, and especially when it's not just intellectual, right? When people think of statistics, they think of the intellectual engagement, but there's a deep emotional resonance here. So, a people yeah. have been kind of traumatized by maths at school, and they feel like I don't get it. <laughs> like as soon as they see a chart, they just yeah. abdicate all responsibility. And that's particularly the case when it comes to a subject like COVID, which is already upsetting and already feels overwhelming, that unless you give people an in, I think the desire is to close the tab, to look away. And just instead, what we're left with is individuals making uninformed personal choices about what constitutes risk and what constitutes safety. And we see time and time again that people miscalculate, basically. I just keep on coming back to it. It's really fascinating to me. I mentioned earlier that I had... I've come back to Britain very briefly for a few weeks during the course of this pandemic. And I was so shocked to see that London, I mean, this is obviously just based on me wandering around. It's not a perfect data set, but I feel pretty confident saying this. London was just taking COVID less seriously than New York. And I was really shocked because we... I think as Brits in particular, but we just think of Americans being so individualistic. So to see (laughs) Brits behaving like that, I was spending so much time trying to understand this politically and culturally. And is this the effect of a Tory government that has changed the culture in the country? Blah, blah, blah. Actually, I think all of those culture explanations are just misguided and it just comes down to communication of health information. So the thing that I keep on coming back to is we all think of Sweden, rightly or wrongly, as this super lefty, nice (laughs) socialist, you know. They had at one point, I don't know if this is still true, the highest case rates in all of Europe. And it's just because the government said, "We, we trust you to figure it out. You cannot just say to people... You figure it out if you're not also going to do the job of really effectively communicating to them, again, what the risks are and how to manage those risks. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it didn't help that some of the government were, like, you know, testing their eyesight on the roads. What's, what does that mean? <laughs> no, no, no. So basically, sorry, I've already very like niche reference. So Dominic Cummings. I saw that he was he was spotted having completely broken all of the. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And basically used the excuse that he was testing his eyesight on the roads. I did not know that's what the excuse was. Honestly, it's just like every single time you hear anything, like I was the one who told a friend of mine about this Four Seasons Total Landscaping thing, which I'm sure you've heard of. And like, you just saw her face looking at me. You are making this up. There is no way I'm going to believe you until I go home and Google it because it just sounds so ludicrous. I thought that was a fake tweet. Yeah, of course you did. Like even this morning when I saw the, did you see Boris Johnson tweeted congratulations to Joe Biden? Not not yet. So he tweeted like, it's so trashy. It's just text on a background that says congratulations to Joe Biden. Some fucking genius downloaded it, altered the contrast and you can see where it was saying congratulations to Trump and they hadn't fully deleted it and no. just wrote over the new text. Again, it just sounds like bullshit, but it's absolutely true. I don't like, know what to believe do, like, As someone <laughs> so who does stats. graphic design stuff, like yeah. the degree of incompetency to erase the old message about Trump is so weird. Yeah. Today was like my non-internet day. That's why I was Keep refraining, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I mentioned in the introduction, you know, you cover topics from what time of day America eats pizza, but you also address topics around sexual harassment, immigration mm. issues, the ban on abortions, to name a few. I mean, these are such big, important topics that I find, thanks to your drawings, I can actually feel like I can engage with in a much more immediate way. There is something about seeing your graphs and charts on these issues that opened my eyes and just helped me to make sense of them ways that I think otherwise might seem overwhelming, like we were just saying. I mean, why do you like to engage with this such sort of myriad, broad Mm. range of topics when it comes to your data-driven work? I think the really sincere answer is just that I'm interested in a bunch of different things. And that's why I always end up looking at different things. But I think earlier on in my career, it was also quite tactical. And it was a desire to speak to non-Guardian readers about topics that I cared about. So it was a bit of a kind of tactical bait and switch that if I post something on day one about pet ownership and dogs and cats, I'm going to reach everyone regardless of political affiliation. And then on day two, I post how being anti-abortion effectively is a huge threat to women's health. And even if you end up unfollowing me, you've still seen that chart and that information before you hit unfollow. I have to say the Trump election kind of changed everything for me. And I don't think that the 2020 election has changed anything since this 2016 kind of epiphany, which is that I'm okay with preaching to the choir right now. I think there are a lot of vulnerable people who need information more than people whose minds I'm trying to change, if you see what I mean. So, for example, in the wake of 2016, if you're an immigrant in this country that is trying to understand your rights and whether or not you're going to get deported... I care more about delivering information to you so that you can understand your legal rights than I care about persuading some Republican about your human rights. Like, fuck it. You're in power now. You're in the White House. You've got what you want. I'm not here for the handholding and the compassion. I'm here to try to help vulnerable people as much as I can and vulnerable communities. So I think that emphasis really shifted. So I would say, yeah, my work really isn't trying to change anyone's mind particularly anymore. If I've changed any minds, I guess that's a bit of a bonus maybe I've certainly changed my mind a few times when I've been looking at information no I just think it's it's a way of allowing I think so many people to engage in them I don't think you have to have any knowledge about what the subject is that you're dealing with and then you engage with it I just feel like I've had such an education from looking at your work this year I mean have you always found that you had a social and political motivation behind the work or do you think it was really informed by 2016 Mm, I think I've always been quite maybe argumentative is the word my mum would just call me difficult. If someone says something, <laughs> if someone says something that I don't agree with, I'm like always, but no, you're wrong because of this, this and this. So I think for some things to me that just seem quite self-evident, you know, refugees having a right to safety or the idea that the minimum wage should guarantee people a basic degree of dignity. <sighs> I care about, I don't know, I just care about those things. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I think what's so interesting is that you also measure things up so well so for example recently a really really fantastic drawing of yours was that I mean they all stick in my mind but was the work about Trump's federation tax who's now going to be out of office thank Mm. god after this weekend maybe maybe Katie seriously I can't believe how quick people are like he's not going to go quietly and I don't and he's definitely going to be in office till January at least you are completely right I need to to stick with the facts but you highlighted in such simple ways the injustices of the system and so for those not familiar with the graph on the y-axis you had the list of respectable jobs ranging from registered nurses to trash collectors and transport workers and then the president at the bottom on the x-axis and you had the amount of thousands of dollars that they paid in tax and it was through slices of cheese that you demonstrated 
demonstrated these injustices. I mean, this illustration came out on the 28th of September, the day after the New York Times actually posted the news. I mean, do you like to kind of react to the current news cycle immediately, I guess? I think as much as possible, yes. I think it's good to be a part of existing conversations rather than necessarily trying to start your own. I think that can sometimes be a bit more of an uphill battle. I would say that one of the things that's quite nice in some ways about hand-drawn illustrations is people can see a little bit more the work that's gone into it. Whereas charts feel like this black box, you can see that I've drawn this thing. And so I think it also opens you up to a little bit more leniency, not to get it wrong, but for people to understand the speed with which it was created. Exactly as you say, people understand, I heard this news four hours ago, and now I'm seeing this hand-drawn chart. Yeah. And I also think that the really nice thing about data journalism and the charts that I make is that so often in journalism, right, you read an article and you're faced with a fundamental choice, which is either I believe this or I don't believe this. And I think that good data journalism allows you to follow the steps of the methodology and not just have a, a kind of ultimatum of either you believe me or you don't as a journalist, but repeat my steps. See if you reach the same conclusion, right? Here's the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics about various jobs, which means that I chose these six jobs. But hey, if you are a teacher in Delaware, you can download the average statistics for where you live and make that comparison. I think the idea of people not just accepting or rejecting facts, but fact-checking them themselves is maybe quite ambitious, but I think that it can be fun and exciting if you kind of view it as like a little bit of a, you know, Columbo or Jessica Fletcher kind of trying to get to the facts. Yeah. But I want to get to the election and this year in a moment, but I just love to sort of go back with you because yeah. and I just love to know how you got started. I mean, you were born in London and uh, mm-hmm. you also studied at the University of Jordan. Was art or statistics, you know, something that you were always interested in? I drew loads as a kid, but I think I was a really, really sensible and focused kid and quite studious, but also rejected all authority figures and was incredibly naughty in school. So I'd say like, fuck you to the teacher, but also turn my homework in on time. Yeah. So basically, I was interested in art, but I felt like it wasn't sensible as a thing to do. So we just focused on other things. And basically, I did statistics as part of my master's degree. And coming out of the master's, I was working at the International Organisation for Migration, doing something called monitoring and evaluation, which is where you're using statistics to find out how many people are in need and what they need. And just really quickly felt like the ways those statistics were being communicated were quite ineffective. So from there, I wanted to get into journalism and data journalism felt like a good bet. And yeah, I've been doing that since 2011. So you never studied art? No, God, no, you can tell. Come on, like, you can be very, very sweet about things, but I still can't draw a face for shit. My closest friends will, like, roast me. <laughs> yes, you can. No, I... You are, no. like, literally, like, one of the most amazing artists. Your wave for the votes the other day, that was mind-blowingly good. No, literally, we were, we were out, this, there was this amazing moment where we were out at brunch, and my friend Bissy was like, oh, why did you post that picture of that, like, baby? Who drew the baby? And then there was, like, this <laughs> silence that fell over brunch where everyone else realised what was going on. I was like, I didn't get it. I was like, what do you mean? She was like, the baby on your Instagram, it was so frightening looking. Who drew it? And I was just like, this dude was me. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. It was hilarious. I can't. I can't. It's okay. I have other skills, but faces are not it. Maybe I'll get there one day. Okay, but like your use of colour and your use of just, it's just, they're just so beautiful as their artworks and themselves is how I see them as well. Thanks, Katie. <laughs> 
I can't believe it. Um, but I mean, when did you kind of become aware that data visualization was a thing? When did I become aware of it? So I was creating charts in that job at the International Organization for Migration. Such a mouthful, the IOM. <laughs> and then I did a one-day workshop in data journalism that was taught by the guy who was then the data editor at The Guardian in London. His name was Simon Rogers. And I was just like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And again, I only started illustrating five years ago when I was quite frustrated in that job oh, wow. yeah yeah I think I stopped drawing when I was six or seven and I, it's so funny my sister sent me an illustration that I did back then and it's the exact wow. same style and I can even send you one of them yeah please like they're really really fucking creepy even <laughs> as a child I was still interested in like piss and shit I think it's because my mum was a gynecologist so we were just always talking about weird bodily stuff yeah so then I started drawing again five years ago and I know it sounds really pathetic to say that I got so much of my self-esteem from Twitter but at the time my, my self-confidence was so low having been in this job where I didn't really feel respected that actually it meant so much to me to have people saying I like your work on Instagram. That was the kind of affirmation that I desperately, desperately needed. I would have thought you were just someone who just like has always drawn and drawn and drawn and drawn and see the world Aww. through like illustrations. I wish. No, that really, really wasn't me. Like I said, <laughs> I felt like it wasn't a sensible thing to do. That's not a way that you're going to be able to support yourself. And I've always been pretty obsessed with this idea of financial security. So these are some of your earliest drawings as a child. Yeah. I'll link to these in the show notes for everyone to see. The first one is about the importance of going to the oh toilet. Oh my God, okay. And it's a little weird naked child. <laughs> oh my God. I think literally, I just think it was about like important rules to follow was the design brief. And I went for let's draw a naked infant shitting themselves. I love how pissed off this kid looks. But I will say that on closer inspection, honestly, I, I honestly think this is one of my finest works. If you will notice, above the sink is a mirror and I've drawn the back of my head in the mirror. Wow. I'm well proud. Yeah, yeah. It's funny though, I'm really fascinated by siblings and I will also say that my sister was an artist. Oh, really? She went to art school. She's also a bit more of a free spirit and stuff than I am. So I also think that because from a relatively young age, she was the one that was drawing, I was like, oh, if you're going to do that, then I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. Just a contrarian, basically. Yeah. But I mean, you mentioned, you know, you started using illustrations mm. then. I mean, what do you think kind of constitutes a good... Mm graph getting your message across mm -hmm. through illustration so i think a good graph integrates the subject matter into the visual itself so most charts are just bars lines they could be about anything but if i'm gonna try to communicate information about the prevalence of rectal bleeding then i think it's really important to show a bum with blood gushing out of it you know yes I mean? yeah i love that one of yours <laughs> <laughs> And I think that that does a few things. First of all, it means that you stay with the information for longer. So I would say that one of the biggest problems with interactives, right, is you go on the page and you very quickly feel overwhelmed and you look at it for two seconds and you close the tab. And the same thing with really long, complicated infographics, right? You start to digest it and then you just feel, like, oh my God, I want a snack. I want to open up TikTok. Like I just want to look away. <laughs> and so I think having a, an illustration of a bum on there just makes you stay with it those extra two or three seconds. And those make the difference between you leaving the page with the information that you came for or you leaving before you got that information and the other thing I think is that 
I think so much about our ability to retain information. How much do you actually remember of what you studied at college? Like, it's just so insane that we spent all of this money on university. I cannot tell you one single thing that I remembered. And I do think I'm quite a visual learner. So I think anything that you can do that makes that information something that you retain is really powerful, especially when it comes to health issues. If I can help you retain something like the speed of coronavirus spread in various indoor settings, if I can do that in a really good visual way, then perhaps the next time you're sitting indoors with someone who also isn't wearing a mask, you're just going to think twice for that extra second. You know, it can have a real impact on health outcomes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just so many health, political or social issues, it just digests things so much easier. I mean, this is sort of totally different, but my favourite one of yours recently was the mandatory paid vacations on Mm in the world Spain, Sweden, Germany, France etc kind of going down and the sun lounges even that I was like oh my god I had no idea about any of this data it might even be necessary in my life for me Mm. but that's actually a really interesting fact Mm. to know and one of the things I really really love is I pay so much attention to all of the comments so on that example that you just mentioned a bunch of the comments were actually no I'm in France and we get this many days. And it was because the the statistics I was using was mandatory paid leave. So it includes bank holidays and stuff like that. So it's everything that's mandated by government. But that's still so thrilling to me because it means you have read the chart and you've properly understood what that number is to then have the ability to critically engage with it and say yes or no. Like I did another one about the rise in the number of Ku Klux Klan groups that had emerged in the US. And again, for people to say, why did it spike in this year and then decline in this year shows they have read that information and engaged with it. So yeah, I really love the comments. And I think in addition to critically examining the charts, I really love when people layer on their personal experiences because what data is generally quite incompetent at is telling you why so I can tell you how something has changed over time I can tell you which groups are affected I can tell you how things vary geographically but if I'm showing you for instance to go back to that idea the number of Ku Klux Klan groups in the US I can overlay it with something else to show you a correlation so I can show you how Republican policies or something might correlate with that but actually for someone underneath it to write a paragraph in the comments talking about their uncle who recently joined who believes x y and z that didn't happen I'm just saying like what people very often do (laughs) but people do (laughs) so often layer on this explaining that I am just so incapable of doing and it's also an example of the limits of what I know from looking at the data so I was trying to show how much stop and frisk in the US constitutes an abuse of power. So it was two bars. So the first bar shows you how many young black men there are in New York. And the second bar shows you how many stop and frisks there were of young black men. There were more stop and frisks of young black men than there were young black men in the city, which means that on average, everyone is getting stop and frisked more than once, right? Wow. And so I I did that. And then I showed how a judge had ruled that the use of stop and frisk was unconstitutional. And afterwards, you see that the use of stop and frisk, like the number of stop and frisks of young black men absolutely shrinks down. I published that. Here's the story. Rulings make a difference. Other people commented underneath saying, you've missed it. There are two stories here, which I hadn't noticed. The number of young black men in New York had also shrunk. It's ever so slight, but it shrunk. And they're like, that's a story of gentrification. It's a story of gentrification and you just missed it because you were focusing on this other part. It's just so interesting to me how people's lived experience is just so invaluable if you want to make correct inferences. Yeah, absolutely. And what's kind of amazing about Instagram has become this kind of forum as well for discussion. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know. It's sad. I, I like. I, it's not sad. It, things change and things move. But I already feel like I'm kind of becoming a bit redundant, and how much I need to learn TikTok if I still want to continue to reach new and younger audiences. I have an account, but I, it, like the stuff that I post is quite shit because I'm figuring it out. It's hard. Sorry, I'm literally in my no. No, no. TikTok. Why should you? Like, I can't have another social media like consuming. I know. I know. So bad. (laughs) But do you do actual animations on that? I did the very first one that I did actually did really really well, and it was me explaining. So Mark Zuckerberg had made a donation for COVID. And just to take a step back, the thing that unites all of my work is that what I'm trying to communicate to you is scale in every single thing that I do. You hear a number like 300 million. What the fuck does that mean? And the only way you can (laughs) understand any number really is by comparing it to something else. So in the case of Mark Zuckerberg, I forget how much his donation was, but he'd made a donation to COVID. And I was showing that as a fraction of his wealth. And I believe that as a fraction of his wealth, it was 0.03% or 0.003%. And I just showed it by taking a glass of water and taking a tiny pipette and kind of squeezing out a little bit of the water. So I think it's weird things like that, that I need to use more physical objects to communicate stuff and just be a bit creative. Yeah, but it's hard. I mean, you're you're doing it fantastically and you're appealing to Instagram followers like me. I'm probably just clueless about TikTok. And, but I mean, you know, this is so, it's, it's just so fascinating hearing you speak about all these different topics. Mm. You mentioned that people literally comment in to give you extra data mm-hmm. and actually to almost create another whole segment to hold probably another chart in itself where do you get so much of this information so I think that having done it for quite a few years now I understand where the sources are for various main things it's actually quite hard coming to the US because in the UK everything that you need is from the office for national statistics every single morning I would just check their site and see what their new data releases are it's a really good site really easy to navigate over in the US it's like I know that if I want jobs data it's going to come from the bureau of labor statistics i know generally if i want health data it's going to come from the centers for disease control and prevention i used to have a morning routine where there was like 20 different sites that i checked and they included places like eureka alert and science daily where they publish new academic papers and so i see part of my job as translating those scientific papers to a general audience because sometimes they contain such fascinating stuff but you literally the way that they're written is so dense and hard to get into it's just fascinating i mean even just the way that maybe something that would appeal to kind of the work that i'm doing as well as was your fantastic exhibition 2019 which was called who are you here to see which really kind of analyzed all the different artists and their race and their gender in museums so you kind of had this kind of quite classical looking columns and then you had all these different people determined by their skin color or their gender I've seen you know 89% men or 88% you know whatever white men in certain pie charts I mean what I find really interesting is that you're almost kind of creating something that's quite guerrilla girlish so it's like these kind of bold big statements that actually once you look at this one thing I'm now going to remember what the actual kind of physicality of race, of gender in a museum. I mean, can you tell us about how this project, Who Are You Here to See, came about? Yeah, so, I mean, it actually just came about because the gallery owners got in touch and asked me to come up with an exhibition. I like doing things that are like, site-specific I don't really know if I had a commission to do something in a school I'd want to make it about education so the idea to like be in a gallery it just felt like it was relevant to make it about the art world and how disproportionately white and male it is yeah so I found this academic paper that found as you say I think it's 89% of all of the artists in 18 major U.S. 
arts museums are all white men. 100 characters in the foregrounds were made up of 89 white men. I think it was 11 white women and like maybe two Asian men. But you know, it was was roughly those numbers. And then in the background, I added in all of the women and people of colour that should really be in that space in order for it to adequately represent the US population. And it took forever. And it was also just a real (laughs) eye-opening. I assume a lot of your listeners are probably artists themselves, but I feel like it was a really eye-opening experience about how galleries work and how generally it's quite extractive and pretty one-sided and wasn't a great experience in retrospect. I'm still really happy that I created the work. I worked with a fantastic art curator called Karantama Anyamadu. We decided to have a section of the exhibition which was the work of, I believe it was 10 artists who were predominantly people of colour and women. And that was really, really enjoyable. Meeting those artists, understanding their process and sharing that space with them. But the exhibition ended up costing me a shitload of money. The gallery doesn't shoulder that risk. I mean, aside from meeting those artists and getting to experience their work, I would never work with a private gallery, I don't think, in that way again. I literally broke down on my Instagram stories. You can see a step-by-step on every single part of the process of putting together that exhibition, including the cost of materials to buy the canvas, to stretch the canvas, transporting the work, creating accessible options of it, so creating a tactile version of the painting. And then at the end of the day, if you're lucky, the gallery will provide some wine and snacks on the night. And then take like a massive cut if you sell anything, which I didn't. But it it works. It works, I think, if you are a commercial artist whose work sells very easily. I don't think I'm either of those things. And I don't think I have aspirations to be those things because that whole model is predicated on your work existing basically in physical form in the homes of rich people. And that's not how I want my work to live yeah we had the gorilla girls on a couple of weeks ago oh well i haven't uh, listened on to that one yeah oh my yeah. god amazing <laughs> that's so great yeah. but you know i feel like you're the this generation version in a way because i've ordered your posters online i've got gorilla girls posters on on my walls etc and i love that because what they say and what will be interesting is i'm sure museums have probably acquired mm. your work or definitely will do in the future and actually it doesn't need to be like this one-off like original yeah. like perfect thing actually they'd much rather have their work on the walls of girls in dorm rooms than like vaults underground yeah. or above some like weird beige sofa and wherever yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know there's, there's something amazing about and, that, and that's what I think they've really paved the way and what you're continuing to do is the fact that actually art can be this thing that you look on an Instagram it can be this thing you look up online and I find that I interact with your work and their work far more yeah 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 <laughs> with like also I mean it's so arbitrary as well the art world I would kind of say the entire economy is just like a really incredible pyramid scheme that is built yeah. on mutual faith and a shared fantasy so we all get together and we collude that this piece of work is worth 10 million because that's what we've all decided and therefore it's worth 10 million and the idea of creating work where the physical costs of production are much closer to the final price so you know i'm going to send a poster to you in delaware i don't know why i keep on using delaware as an example anyway i'm going to send <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> i'm going to send a poster to you and it costs 12 dollars to create and the shipping is four dollars and i'm going to sell it to you for 20 dollars, and you're going to understand that you know i'm going to be left with four dollars but you have that transparency and that understanding of why that thing costs that much. No, absolutely. I mean, one thing that I urge everyone to look up and also acquire if they want is your fantastic If New York City Were 100 People. I mean, this work... 
honestly was like the most moving oh, piece of work you. I've ever seen, but also just so beautiful. I don't know why you say you can't draw. You're like the most beautiful drawer ever. That's also on view in Westfield World Trade Center right now. And it visualizes what the city's population would look like if it was distilled from millions to a more relatable 100 individuals who all represent the racial, economic and social realities of the city's population. I mean, can you tell us about this work and why did you want to tell the story of the New York public? Yeah, this started a really long time ago. It was long before COVID. And it was again about this idea of humanising data that I keep on coming back to. When you hear that, I don't know, 32% of the city is white, think, what does that look like? And I think one way to to see it is to have 100 characters and to make 32 of them white. So I spent a lot of time downloading various data sets. And it's actually a lot more arbitrary than it sounds. Because let's say you find out that 32 of the people are white, and 15% of the city are teenagers. Like, how are you going to distribute those 15 between the different racial and ethnic groups? You're making all of these arbitrary decisions about who gets to be what. But anyway, I spent a lot of time with the data. I then did something which I don't actually get the chance to do as often as I would like, which is in statistics, it's always a really good idea to pair up. So to have someone else, just give them the same research question as you, but tell them nothing else. And you both do your work and then you compare answers at the end. So because this work mattered so much to me, I was able to get in touch with a former colleague called Andrew Flowers and get him to do it. And we did reach different conclusions. And comparing the notes was really beautiful afterwards to figure out how we had made different decisions. Anyway, from there, I don't know if you can see this, but there's like a table behind me, which is the breakdown of how I initially sketched out all 100 of the characters. This is also in my Instagram stories, like a full process thing. That's all of the 100 they are distributed. And And then I did these line drawing yeah 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 oh wow and then I created this painting over here which is all the 100s <gasps> oh my god really long time that? yeah I painted it in quarantine because otherwise I would have never <laughs> how been can you say to. that you're not an artist but like <laughs> wait no hang on look that okay such wait, a beautiful painting you say that but look I like send this to my friend Morgan and she just laughed for literally like 20 minutes look at this person's hand Katie <laughs> And they might one. be pregnant and they might be stretching their hand. They might be no, putting it in a pocket. No, that's not a normal hand. No. They've got it stretched over their pregnant bump. <laughs> it's a basketball player who does not have a pregnancy bump. <laughs> but sure, you can say whatever you like. It's such a, such a thing of privilege to be bad at something and still be able to pursue it. It's encouraging though as well. And also probably because maybe you hadn't had that history or that education, actually you come to it in a, with a much more fresh perspective maybe maybe so then the wonderful people at the lower manhattan cultural council got in touch and asked me to create some work for the world trade center so i redrew all 100 of them all over again in digital form and they're up there up until the end of this month so the numbers that i looked at were disability immigration status race ethnicity gender and income and I think one of the ones that really sticks with me the most out of all of those statistics was the disability status. So I believe, I don't want to misstate this, I believe 17% of people in the city have got some form of disability. It could be 11%. It's either 11 or 17. I know it's a weird thing to say, but for some reason, two numbers stick in my head. And I just think about, obviously, disability comes in all kinds of forms. It's not necessarily uh, mobility issues, but I just think about how 
bad this city's infrastructure is to have any form of disability and also honestly how bad my work is for that like I think all the time about how little of my work is able to reach people who have either visual impairments or blindness so I'm constantly thinking about ways to get better at that so actually TikTok is a really interesting example and you know obviously you can post videos on Instagram as well but how can you post work that is effective for both people with hearing difficulties or vision impairments and like with everything whenever you make something more accessible you just end up bringing everyone in just everyone benefits when you open things up a little bit more so I'm constantly thinking about ways to do that and unfortunately I would say that data visualization as a field as the name suggests has just been focused on visuals there yeah. is so much potential in data sonification. So using sound and yeah. music to communicate data in tactiles, in the use of smell, like any other possible sense. Let's use them all. Let's create stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I just thought that this work was just so beautiful because you know like you're saying especially somewhere like New York which like when I go to it's just so overwhelming everything's like pretty fast and everything and and actually you don't see everyone who's Mm. working during the night you don't and it's just it was so beautiful in the sense that it just gave precedent to everyone and just shows this equality which I think what your work is so good at doing it just it shows everyone you're absolutely right because I feel having finished the painting I was just like whoa because my neighborhood is pretty white you don't ever see as you said New York all in one place you'll go into an office building where it's yeah. more affluent or again as I mentioned because of accessibility you're not seeing people with disabilities in these public spaces in quite the same way so I think yep. it was really beautiful to see just how mixed I guess the the city is to see how much the data is still imperfect, right? So I am an Arab woman living in New York. Not one of these characters is Arab because we don't have any data on Arabs. Oh, wow. Of course I understand the shortcomings of the data. The characters that are mixed race, what colour tone am I, am I going to choose to depict them? How am I going to communicate the full range of different mixed race people in New York if I only have, I don't know, three or four characters to do that in? So... It's not a perfect picture of New York, but I think it's more honest about its failings because I think when you see those 100 characters, you're like, oh, this is a gist. I'm not expecting this to be a perfect representation. People get it. Yeah. But I mean, you mentioned this right at the start of the interview, Mm. but you know, this idea of emotion as well Mm. in your work. And I feel like so much of your work really has a lot of depth and a weight to it. One of the most emotional, I mean, behind you right now I can see on your wall you've got this absolutely beautiful illustration of Breonna Taylor and each of like these kind of stars in the sky and each star represents a black woman killed by the US police since 2013 and then you have other things like the 70% of sexual harassment incidents go unreported and the sort of sea or I guess like water and most of the faces are underneath because you only see the 30% and I mean that weight and emotion I think any human can't help but react to that. I think it would be impossible not to. And actually, when you see that stat, it actually becomes a real life thing. I mean, how do you go about dealing with these really sensitive topics and kind of adding that weightiness to them? It's really hard, you know, because I I would say that I also use humour and levity a lot in my work. But obviously, with something like sexual harassment, how do you make something that people don't want to look away from? And again, with police brutality, I'm not going to draw... a a dead body I think that's really disrespectful to those who have been killed to their family members but you also can't really add levity to it so I think it just really forces you to kind of I do a combination I guess of just sitting in silence and thinking wait a second is that a terrible idea and most of the time it's a terrible idea there's a lot of trial and error and also something that I do that I think a bunch of artists must do is I try to figure out 
What is the existing visual language about something? It's quite hard when it comes to gender, right? So many of the data sets that I'm communicating, we have so little information about trans and non-binary people in most data sets. So I'm trying to communicate how things break down for men versus women. How do I use visual language about men versus women? I hate the circles with like the crosses and the arrows. They make no sense yeah, to yeah, me. They're yeah, terrible. Yeah. Actually, the thing that I do, which I'm really lucky to have enough of a platform where people will respond to me, is I just ask for help. Like I tweeted saying, I need to communicate statistics about men and women. What visual language should I choose? And one of my very smart friends, Jenna Wortham, tweeted back at me saying, why don't you just use M's and W's? It's genius. So clever. But I mean, this year has been an incredibly eventful year and I found myself constantly kind of visiting your Instagram page, honestly, to make sense of everything because it's so overwhelming. I mean, how do you find that you've responded to issues around the coronavirus and Black Lives Matter? So I think with the coronavirus in particular, it's been really scary because I think the consequences of getting it wrong, the stakes are so high. So I remember right at the start of it, I produced an illustration showing just how much more effective hand washing is than antibacterial gels or whatever. And even though the facts of it are true, I think actually it's quite scary because it could make people interpret that there's no point even using antibacterial wipes, whereas it's still better than nothing. So I took it down because I just felt like it was scary to me. I would just say the stakes have felt really, really high. So actually, I feel like I've been pretty quiet. I used to be posting and drawing and doing stuff all day, every day, whereas I just, I'm much slower now to hopefully make sure that I get it right. And when it comes to the Black Lives Matter protests over here, I've also felt really, really cautious because, I mean, I guess to a certain extent, the same is true of COVID. I'm not in the most at-risk groups. And there is this popular myth that we're all in it together, which is not true when it comes to COVID. But especially when it comes to Black Lives Matter, I'm not black. So deciding the visual language for a lot of these things, when ultimately you're depicting, to a certain extent, a community that you're not a part of, feels difficult. But I also don't want to abdicate my responsibility and just say, it's hard and I'm scared of getting it wrong. Equally, I don't want to constantly be tapping black friends on the shoulder and saying, hey, what do you think of this before I post it? That's also asking people to do emotional work and intellectual work and just work without paying them. I think all the time about ways to almost institutionalise and organise my processes to be better. Yeah, totally. I think what you were so good at doing, though, in terms of education during that time was especially talk, like discussing police brutality. So the fact that the average hours of training required to work as a cop versus a beautician. And I felt like they were so informative and just put things out there that were clearly out mm. in the world. I mean, in England, I don't know as much as Americans because I'm not there, mm. but I just thought they were great ways of just really digesting actually what we need to do mm. in terms of what does defunding the police mean because of this and everything. Yeah. Well, so often I would say a lot of that is just building on the work of existing organisers. So again, I'm looking at the conversations that are already happening. I'm looking at people saying that the training for police officers is inadequate. And that then is a research question for me of how can I communicate that by looking at what the training actually consists of. And yeah, to see not only how few hours it is, but for instance, that the average police officer receives two hours of training on domestic violence. Like, that's just... Not enough when you're getting... No wonder then that people who are experiencing domestic violence are are reluctant to call the cops. Yeah, anyway, really upsetting and disappointing. How do you want your illustrations to influence people? Well, I hope that people feel empowered to make decisions about what's best for them. 
And I, and I do hope sometimes that it has a bit of an emotional effect. Like I know that isn't what most people are trying to do with data, but I think if you're looking at statistics on police brutality or income inequality, if you're not pissed off, then I don't think I've done my job right. You need to be pissed off, yeah. but also pissed off to such an extent that you feel compelled to act. And hopefully if I'm doing a really good job as a journalist, I'm giving you the tools to understand what you can do about it, which is really hard to do all of those steps to inform and say, here's how you can help to make things better. But I think that's really important because otherwise people are just left actually feeling quite powerless and overwhelmed. And as we've seen this past year, we can make changes happen. We can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mona, thank you so much. It has honestly been such an honour to speak to you. And I just feel so informed and excited. And I really believe that people will look back at your work in 50 to 100 years time and they will see actually the immediacy of how we lived at this time. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a female artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? This is a weird one, but it's just based on the fact that I just watched a really totally down the line, half mediocre, half good, half racist, half not racist Netflix documentary about ancient Egypt. And I'm obsessed with ancient Egypt. And I think about the artists who embalmed the bodies, who wrapped them, who created the murals on the walls there. To me, that is the fucking apex of art. And it's also like, there's... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I would, and I'm, I had hoped that some of them were women. I'm sure, I'm sure they probably just haven't been. Recognized. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, like, there's one scene in this terrible documentary, which is of a cat that has been like wrapped up in all of the linen, and then has had a cat face painted on top of the linen, and it is just exquisite. So I would like to meet that artist and say, "Nice job." absolutely absolutely Mona Chalavi thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thank you all so much for listening to the 49th episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the fantastic Mona Chalabi. I am just in awe of all her work and urge you all to look it up. I have linked to her work in the show notes as well as her fantastic Instagram handle where she uploads so much of her work. Her project 100 New Yorkers is at Westfield World Trade Centre until the 30th of November. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Laura Hendry and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.